Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why are monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. stories in in science then? Well, uh, interestingly, of course, we're all hearing lots about climate change and rising CO2 levels. So I suppose it's quite apposite this week that scientists have published research showing that the brain has its own built-in suffocation sensor. Hmm. Uh, This is a piece of research by a guy called Adam Zeman, who's at the University of Iowa in America. He's got a paper in the journal Cell this week. And what he's shown is that the brain's amygdala which is a tiny structure, it's about the size of an almond actually, on both sides of the brain, which is actually involved in anger and fear and rage sensations. Well, this bit of the brain actually has a special iron channel. It's called an ASIC-1A, which stands for Acid Iron, Acid Sensing Iron Channel 1A. And what this does is it registers how much carbon dioxide is in the body. Because when you Uh, have too much carbon dioxide in your body, carbon dioxide reacts with water to produce carbonic acid, and this makes tissues go acid, and tissues can register that, and then they can change your rate of breathing accordingly. So what these researchers were doing was looking to see how acid building up in the brain affects sensations of rage and panic and that kind of thing. They were doing this in mice, but what they found is that this amygdala is very sensitive to carbon dioxide levels, and they're very interested in this because there are people who have panic disorders like panic attacks, anxiety attacks and things like that, where hyperventilation, breathing too fast, is a symptom. And it could be that these people have some kind of strange uh, abnormality in the way in which their brain registers carbon dioxide, so they're oversensitive to it. And this is what triggers off these panic sensations and makes them breathe too fast. So they're looking at this to see if this is a, a, a sort of clue as to how we might be able to provide better ways to, to help and treat people who have those problems. Ooh, all right, all interesting stuff. We'd better start with our questions then, Dr Chris. A gentleman in Colchester who says he refuses to go to the loo in the middle of the night. Is retraining urine a problem? Well, it depends how much urine you retain, I think. The bladder is incredibly stretchy, and if it's empty, it goes down to something which is smaller than the size or width of two fingers, and it's a giant muscular bag and as the kidneys pump urine in and kidneys make urine at the rate of about one milliliter every minute the bladder inflates and it can stretch up to when it can easily accommodate a liter once you get to a liter's bladder volume it's getting very uncomfortable but it never bursts so in other words it undergoes this sort of receptive relaxation so the muscle fibers that make up the wall of the bladder just relax and relax and relax to accommodate more urine eventually though the pressure of urine in the bladder will exert a back pressure on the ureter, the pipe that carries the urine from the kidney down into the bladder, and that can then reflux, go backwards up that tube and exert back pressure on the kidney, and it can cause hydronephrosis, and this can be bad. So you shouldn't uh, try to withhold urine too much because there is a danger. You could end up going into urinary retention when you want to release the urine, but you can't, and, and that can happen if you go over the top and try and hang on for too long. But a little bit of bladder training, encouraging the bladder to undergo this receptive relaxation and not to, to empty too quickly, uh, it can, can be a good, good practice actually for making sure that you don't end up a bit leaky, especially as you get a bit older. And that's especially true for, for men as well as women. Um, but 
pushing it to the limit is probably not advisable because I do know somebody that suppressed it for a long, long time and actually then ended up having to go to hospital for a bit of help to get the urine out because uh, basically he got so full up he couldn't start going. All right, so gentlemen, be warned. Um, Now, talking about jet lag, um, Mike says that he has a system as he travels a fair bit, and if he's flying west, he takes a daytime flight and sits on the left-hand side of the plane for maximum sunlight and then stay awake until more normal bedtime. Flying east, he takes an overnight flight, um, eat before you board the plane, and uh, then have an eye mask on and earplugs and sleep till the next morning to slot into the time zone. How about that? Do you think you can train yourself to do that? It does make a difference whether you're going east-west or west-east. Um, it depends on the individual to a certain extent because not everyone's body clock works the same way. And scientists now understand a bit more about the body clock. In fact, what we know about the body clock is that it's a cluster of nerve cells in the core of the brain, a structure called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And in those nerve cells, there is a genetic program running, a bit like a molecular domino effect. So one gene turns on, this turns on another gene, which turns on another gene and turns off the first gene, and that turns on another gene, which turns on another another gene turns off the previous gene and it goes round and round in a circle taking about 24 and a half hours to do it and the activity of those genes changes the activity of the nerve cells which then send signals to different bits of the brain basically informing your brain as to what time of day it is this then affects the production of various hormones which go into the blood including a hormone um, called cortisol which goes all the way around the body and that informs all the other cells in your body what time your brain thinks it is and those cells in every other tissue in the body also have their own body clock and they're basically setting their clock by your brain clock. So your brain is the master clock and the rest of the body runs its own clock which can go off kilter if the brain goes off kilter so you have to readjust basically and this is really important because what scientists have shown in recent years is that certain drugs will only work at certain times of the day certain chemotherapy agents to treat bone marrow cancers for example will work at some times of the day but not at others and this is because they've discovered now that the bone marrow is running its own genetic clock and it turns on the production of stem cells at some times of the day, but not others. And if you give the drugs at the wrong time, they don't hit the cells that you want to kill. So understanding the body clock is really, really fundamental, and it's also linked to other aspects of health and disease, because people who work shift work have higher rates of heart disease, high blood pressure and stroke, and in women, there's a higher risk of breast cancer in people who work shift work. So it's probably quite bad for your body to interfere with your body clock. But where you have to do that, for instance, taking flights and things, then trying to fit in with the new time zone as soon as possible and exposing yourself to lots of bright light wherever you're going is the way to get right. And the reason for that is that in the back of your eyeball, in the retina, are a cluster of nerve cells that respond to blue light at about 540 nanometers. And those cells send a special signal straight back into your body clock and they reset it. So your body clock resets using signals from your eye. So exposing yourself to lots of bright light, a bit like what Mike was saying, sitting in the open window on the aeroplane, can help to tune your body clock into your new time zone. Interesting stuff. Another reason to go to Vegas. From body clocks to Dr Chris to um, lovely Tony, who we have in Chelmsford. Hello, Tony. Hello, Sue. Hello, Chris. What's your question? Yeah, I've got, I watched a very interesting program about the next generation spaceships that they're, they're currently building and planning. And they were spending billions on when they re-enter to create really 
brilliant um, heat shields because they say when these spaceships come back, they're going to be doing something like 22,000 miles an hour. And obviously yeah. it's a very, very dangerous stage as it enters the Earth's atmosphere. I thought, why not spend a lot less and, and slow down before you get here? If you're only doing 100 miles an hour or 1,000 miles an hour, surely you wouldn't need to spend such huge and vast mo- amounts of money on heat shields and it wouldn't be so dangerous for the occupants. Um, well, I think you're right in the sense that it's the speed that kills. And that's what the police are fond of telling us, isn't it? But um, if you're going very, very fast, which to be in orbit, you're right. If you're orbiting, then you're going thousands of miles an hour. And obviously you can't land at those speeds. And as you come in towards the Earth, you go from being in space where there's virtually no or really is no atmosphere in through the vestiges of the Earth's atmosphere and then into the Earth's atmosphere proper with the air getting thicker and thicker and thicker, in other words, denser all the time because as you get closer to the Earth's surface, there's more air pressure and the more air pressure means the air is denser and therefore it's going to exert a greater frictional effect on your spacecraft and so things will heat up. So if you were going slower to start with, you're right, there'll be less of a frictional effect. The problem is how do we slow down in order to make that not happen. Uh, One way is to fire some kind of rocket to slow us down, and and sometimes craft do do that. Um, They may do it quite close to the planet's surface. They may do it out into space to uh, adjust their trajectory or come in at a certain angle to minimise the impact or to slow the craft down more progressively rather than going ramming straight into the equivalent of a brick wall, which is what it would feel like at those kind of speeds. The problem is that to fire thrusters like that would mean taking enormous amounts of fuel up into space so that you could slow yourself down. The the thrust that got you up there in the first place, you'd need to oppose that in order to slow yourself down again to come home. So I think it's a toss-up between what's safe, what's most cost-effective, and what in the long run is going to provide the best way of recovering these spacecraft. Um, coming back home with big tanks of fuel behind you and then firing these things off and relying just on that seems a bit dangerous to me because, A, if they didn't work properly, you've still got to recover the rocket and now you're flying through the Earth's atmosphere with no protection and you're sitting on a bomb. B, you've got to get twice as much fuel up there to start with and C, surely it's better to just come up with a solution that will work in all cases and still get you home and I think the heat shield approach, therefore, is is the soundest one. What do you think? Yeah, very interesting and very conclusive there. Just one quick question. Where, if you're trying to accelerate to a certain given speed, I assume that's easier to do it in an atmosphere because you've got something to push against. When they get out into space, if they fire their thrusters to go to Mars, for instance, would they actually generate any force because there's nothing to push against in it because you're in a vacuum? Well, actually, Tony, it's the reverse of what you just said. Um, If you're pushing against something, it's pushing back on you, and therefore you find it harder to go along and harder to accelerate because the air that you're pushing against pushes back and exerts air resistance, and this limits the ultimate speed that you can travel at. So when you're driving your car along the road, for example, the engine is doing work and it's hardly losing any energy through the bearings and the wheels where it's losing all the energy and why you're burning fuel in your tank is because you're pushing air out of the way. And if you were driving your car in a vacuum, then you wouldn't have to do that. And admittedly, you'd have to be wearing a spacesuit and have some way of keeping the engine going, but you would use virtually no fuel. And there's a really elegant example of this uh, that uh, physics teachers show their students, and it's called the uh, penny and feather experiment. And what it consists of is a big, long glass tube which has a penny and a feather inside the tube. 
hence the name. And what the teacher will do is have a big bung at each end of this glass tube, so it's sealed, and there's air inside, and they will invert the tube, and the penny will instantly drop from one end of the tube to the other, because the penny's got very low air resistance, and the feather, on the other hand, will drift down just as you expect a feather to. Also, what they've got on that tube is a little tube going through the bung with a valve on it, and they connect that to a vacuum pump, and they pull all of the air out of the tube. So the tube now, can ha now contains a vacuum, if you see what I mean. In other words, you evacuate the tube, no air inside. Now, if you turn the tube over, what do you think happens? Well, I would assume the penny still drops as fast, I don't know. The penny drops, indeed, you're right. Yeah. But what about the feather? Well, I guess if, if you believe in uh, that thing that they did off the Leaning Tower of Pisa, they probably both hit the ground at the same time. Absolutely right, because the acceleration due to gravity is identical for both, but what you've done by evacuating the tube is you've pulled out all of the air and removed the air resistance, so now the feather and the penny land together. So it's a sort of mini version of Galileo's famous experiment, exactly like you say. And that shows you the importance of air resistance. So actually, rockets up in space have a much easier time for two reasons. One, they're not pushing against the atmosphere, which is air resistance, and two, they're further from Earth's gravity, and gravity obeys an inverse square law, so the further away you get, the gravity gets much, much uh, smaller, quicker. So, in other words, you have a double whammy if you're here on Earth and trying to get off the planet. OK, Tony? Thanks. You're Bye. welcome. Thank you very much for your question. Take care. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Dr Chris, we have Steve on the line. Hello, Steve. Hi there. Thank Hello. you very much. You're welcome. What's your question? Uh, basically, I was involved in a road traffic accident uh, probably about two years ago now almost. Um, suffered quite quite a heavy impact, uh, about 120 mile an hour impact in a head-on collision. Um, since the accident, the only thing I could possibly put it down to, I've suffered quite a lot from what I can only describe as probably poor blood circulation, i.e body seemed to be suffering from really cold areas which I never suffered from before. I wondered if it could be linked in any way, Dr Christmas. Hello Steve, I'm sorry to hear Hi. about your misfortune. Yeah. Um, any other side effects or symptoms? Did you have a head injury in the crash? I, I didn't have any head, I only had leg injuries actually in the crash, never not, not a head injury at all. So. Uh, and when you say leg injury, um, did did you end up with the, with sort of severe lacerations or bone, no, bones broken? What happened to you? Oh, I didn't. Um, basically, uh, just tearing of ligaments, um, anterior crucial ligaments, that kind of thing, basically, and really bad swelling uh, in yeah. both legs. Couldn't walk, basically, for about a month, really, because um, of the swelling. So no flexibility. Are, are you more mobile now? I'm definitely more mobile now, certainly. But are you as mobile as you used to be? No, definitely not. No. Because no. Uh, when people move around less and because they're in, in discomfort, your metabolic rate is lower. And as a result, you're burning off less energy. And this means that you're actually producing less heat because the muscles in the body are only about 30% efficient. So in other words, 
for all the energy you put in, only 30% of the energy turns into anything useful, movement, and 70% turns into heat. So if you're less mobile because you're a bit uncomfortable, because you've still got aches and pains, that will make you feel colder for a start. Uh, and then there might be some other less likely things because when people have deceleration trauma, in other words, they go from a very high speed to a low speed very quickly, this yep. can uh, damage or tear nerves in the brain. And sometimes it's possible to tear some of the nerves which control the temperature in the brain because the way in which our body regulates body temperature is we have a structure called the hypothalamus which sits at the bottom of the brain and this weighs up how warm you are, how quickly you're losing heat through your skin and through your head and through warm breath, for example, and how quickly you're making heat through your metabolism and it balances the two to keep your temperature the same. And sometimes in people who have uh, head injuries, then what, what can happen is that because the brain isn't all of the same consistency, different bits of the brain weigh different amounts to each other, when the brain decelerates very quickly because of, say, a crash, then some bits of the brain slow down at a different rate to others, and this can tear them a bit. And this is called diffuse axonal injury. And uh, it can produce things like symptoms of depression, it can also produce symptoms of uh, feeling very tired or sleepy. And it may be that perhaps there's a contribution from that, but I'd, I'd probably put my money more on if you've still got a few aches and pains and, and you're, you're, you may just be doing less because it's uncomfortable for you. Yeah, and that's why you feel yeah. colder. That's great. All right. Thanks so much indeed. All Thanks, right. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much indeed. Thank you, Dr. Chris. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. Take care. We've got Sir Tony on the line. Hello, Tony. Hello, Sue. It's lovely to hear your voice again. And you... All right, you're through to Dr Chris. What's your question? Well, I'm just wondering, I'm getting pretty ancient and barking, <laughs> but uh, when you, you know, this Alzheimer's or just old age, does your time clock, you know, we're talking about time clocks, uh, does that change, do you think? I do wake up at strange times now. The, the answer is that, uh, yes, as you get older, the body clock uh, does or circadian rhythms, your body rhythms do tend to change, and people also need less sleep. So babies sleep enormous amounts, older people sleep much less. And what's very interesting is that there's a wonderful guy at Oxford University, his name is Russell Foster, and he actually dubs himself the clock doc because uh, he's a neurobiologist, he's a professor of neurobiology at Oxford University, and he studies how the body clock works. And I was having a conversation with him the other day and he said to me, look, you know, one, one really interesting thing is if you look at a lot of diseases which are uh, rooted in the, in the nervous system, things like depression, things like Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, they're all associated with people sleeping badly. And everyone assumes that the sleep disturbance is caused by the disease. But the reality is, if you disturb someone's sleep sufficiently, then their brain doesn't work properly anyway. And if you take someone and sleep-deprive them for a very long time, they will actually develop psychosis, some of the symptoms of schizophrenia. So what Russell Foster was saying is that how much of the symptoms of depression, which is associated with people not sleeping properly, they wake up early in the morning, can't get to sleep at night in the first place, feel exhausted all the time, how much of that is actually because the sleep is disturbed, and if you put the sleep right, then some of those other onward problems will get better. How much will the person with Alzheimer's disease's function improve? How much will their memory improve if you put their sleep right so that they're not waking up in the middle of the night walking around and getting a bad night's sleep? Will their symptoms improve if we get that right? And I think the question, or I think the answer is 
a lot. And people now are beginning to realise sleep is incredibly important and a good night's sleep is incredibly important for a healthy brain and a healthy mind. And if we can help people to get a better night's sleep, their health in general improves, not just their mental health, but their physical health as well, because it also has an impact on blood sugar levels. If you sleep-deprive people, they need more insulin, the hormone that makes blood sugar go down, and it also elevates, if they have bad sleep, the amount of fat in the bloodstream and the levels of cortisol, one of the body's stress hormones. So sleep is really, really important, and getting it right could, could hold the key to helping people with a lot of different conditions. And, and as you get older, people do sleep less well for various reasons, and so helping older people to sleep well will probably make older people healthier people. But is there any way they can do that? Yes, um, because... A, by studying how the body clock works and why it goes wrong in some people in the first place. And B, fixing simple things. If you've got a problem like sleep apnea and someone puts on a bit of weight and they, they close off their airway when they go to sleep so they're continuously snoring and waking themselves up, translating into a bad night's sleep. Chronic sleep deprivation makes people unwell. If you've got bad hips and it's making you have arthritic pains or bad back that wake you up all night, putting that right might mean that people get a better night's sleep and as a result they feel healthier. So this is really important and, and people are beginning to appreciate this and, and work out how much we could actually save the NHS by giving people a good night's sleep in the first place. Mm. All right, Tony, lovely to hear from you. And you, sir. Take care, darling. Bye-bye. Uh, Dr Chris, an email in from Anne here. Um, she says, Hi Sue, what Dr Chris has just described applied to would also apply to someone who bounced themselves down three flights of stairs. We're going back to the injury. Um, the whole of the spine was jarred up to the base of the skull. Could this also apply to someone who landed flat on a pavement from about eight feet, landing body first and then the skull hitting to the ground last? If this is the case, it would certainly answer some questions about myself and my son. Both disaster areas are waiting to happen. Yes, is the simple answer. Um, in fact, I was unfortunate enough to look after a patient when I was first qualified as a doctor who had had a very severe head injury by falling to the ground on a pavement. I think he was pushed over by somebody and he bashed his head on the, on the pavement and had what's called a contra-coup injury. Because the brain is floating around inside the skull in fluid, the skull will stop as soon as the body hits the ground, but the brain, which has its own momentum and is floating, will then cannon into the inside surface of the skull and it may even bounce back and then cannon into the other side of the skull as well and you can get bruising, physical bruising of brain tissue and maybe even bleeding into that bruised area. So you can then get actual physical damage to the brain tissue and then there's a secondary effect, which is that that deceleration can also cause that diffuse axonal injury, which I mentioned. It's probably likely to be more mild in the case of a slower speed impact, like falling over. Hmm. But it's certainly very important in people who have severe head injuries at high speed. And Richard Hammond, the Top Gear presenter, when yeah. he had that very severe head injury because of an accident, he complained of memory problems. I think he probably would have had some maybe mood disturbance afterwards for, for maybe a little while. I don't really know because he hasn't gone into huge amounts of detail, but he definitely had some neurological impairment afterwards. And this is for precisely this reason, that the brain has different densities because some bits of the brain are mainly nerve fibres. Other bits of the brain are very dense nerve cell bodies, which weigh a lot more. So the different density of the different bits of the brain means that it speeds up and slows down at different rates. And if you stop the brain moving very abruptly, then the heavier bits carry on. They have more inertia than the lighter bits. And this can tear nerve cells and lead to damage. And that can have all kinds of consequences, including mood disturbances and depression and that kind of thing. 
Um, a few questions coming in here. Malcolm in Lowestoft, Chris, says, um, is he right in thinking that lightning can take place without the presence of, cloud, of clouds? Well, clouds are the big accumulators. The, the way lightning works is that you have ice particles called hydrometeors inside the cloud, and currents in the cloud cause these things to rub against each other really vigorously. It's a bit like you rubbing a balloon on your head, and this is happening millions and billions of times inside the cloud, and air currents cause these hydrometeors to separate from one another, and you have big ones and small ones, and the bottom of the cloud stays minus, and the big uh, the smaller, bigger, um, positive ones go to the top of the cloud and you separate these charges across the cloud and this makes a very big potential difference in the cloud and that's the static electricity and this then discharges down to the ground. So it's very difficult for the, for the air to make clouds, uh, for the air to make lightning without those clouds because the particles that make up the clouds make the static electricity in the first place. So I think that's probably unlikely. Ken has been uh, on the phone and he says um, he wants to know more about the uh, condition ME. Um, can you let us know a little bit more about it? Well, ME is an ill-defined condition and there's not really any consistent definition of what it actually is in the medical literature. No one, no one can really agree on what it is, what the causes might be um, and actually who it affects, um, whether there's any test for it and so on. In the last few months... Scientists have noticed that there might be an association with a virus. Um, this is a xenotropic murine leukemia virus-like virus, uh, XMLV was the virus that was discovered. And this virus is actually a mouse virus, which seems to incidentally infect humans. And uh, a quick study done in America where they just looked at about 100 or 110 people with chronic fatigue syndrome and they compared those people with people who didn't have chronic fatigue syndrome and ME type symptoms. They found that more than three quarters of people uh, with the ME uh, syndrome, they had evidence of this virus in them compared with uh, virtually none of the people in the group that didn't have ME. And this suggests that this virus may be involved. What it doesn't tell us is whether the virus is the cause of the condition or just an association. Now, what I mean by that is that um, the virus may be infecting these people because people with ME have a weaker immune system and therefore they're more prone to getting infected and the virus has got nothing to do with the condition. On the other hand, the virus could have something to do with the condition. It could be triggering it. Um, until we can dissect away which is which, it's going to be impossible to know whether this actually is the cause or not. But it was a paper in Science about a month or two ago. Um, I think, yeah, about two months ago. So um, at the moment, the jury's out. We don't know. Um, but scientists are definitely looking into it. Um Charles in Buckton has said, uh, Hi Sue, hi Dr Chris, uh, what is the optimum world population? And diseases like swine flu may just be nature's way of keeping us under control. What's your opinion? Well, that's true. Um, certainly as the human population rises, we are living at higher density with higher population flux. In other words, people moving from one place to the other, more travel. An exciting statistic, more than half a million people are airborne around the planet at any snapshot moment in time half a million wow. people traveling in the air so diseases have never had it so good in terms of getting around the earth and as we increase the earth's population that's only going to get worse we're going to pack more people into a closer space making it easier for diseases to spread we're going to put more people in contact with more animals making it easier for their diseases to jump into us and at the same time we're going to see more global climate change because more people means more use of energy which means more emissions of greenhouse gases 
Copenhagen, just around the corner, of course. And as a result of that, we're going to see less land area available for us to live in, so we're going to live in higher density, and the whole thing goes round and round in a vicious circle. So the answer is the Earth is totally overpopulated at the moment. The optimum would be a fraction of what we've got at the moment. There are 6.5 billion people on Earth. Population growth is about 1% per year. Doesn't sound like much, but that means we'll double Earth's population roughly every 70 years or so. And uh, at the moment, we're consuming resources at the rate of two planet Earths, not one. So we're in trouble if we carry on business as usual, and we have to find a better way around this. We've, we've got to curb the population problem, because if we carry on the way we are, um, then we probably are really cruising for a bruising. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Listener.